Hello everybody, welcome to or welcome back to Loquacious. I hope you're keeping well. So for today's episode we will be looking at Irish politics. Now I did a poll on my Instagram to get a basic feel of whether people prefer the more general topic discussions or the more news and politics related ones and the news and politics related one um, won by I think like 10% but I decided you know what? Why do we need to compromise? I'll do a bit of both. So today we'll be discussing Irish politics and I have Drummond McGinn and Odrin Johnson on today um, from Frontier Current Affairs to discuss Irish politics. I guess young people are starting to get a bit more inclined and a bit more interested to get involved in activism, which is great, but we still have a lot to do on the Irish forefront, which is why I thought it'd be a great idea to get Drummond and Odrin in today to discuss Irish politics in a way, give a basic background into it and hopefully get you all fired up to go voting the next time we can and to give you an opportunity to learn more, to become more aware and hopefully get more involved in the long run. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, so I'm going to let my guests introduce themselves. I guess if you want to say hello. Hi, I'm Drummond, and I'm the founder and chief editor of Frontier Current Affairs. Hi, I'm Odrin. I'm a third year law and history student in DCU. I run a podcast called uh, Young People in Politics, and I am the head of multimedia uh, at Frontier. Um, so both of you are part of Frontier. So maybe if you want to explain to our listeners, I guess, what is Frontier for those of them that don't know? Uh, so Frontier is a student-led organisation that basically writes daily um, articles and weekly podcasts on uh, current affairs issues from politics to religion, culture, um, commerce and economics, anything that you can think of. Um, we sort of differ from other uh, student publications, I suppose, in the sense that we focus on the grander sort of more uh, political and a uh, world sphere rather than a uh, college sphere. And I think that's sort of what sets us apart from other student publications. And that was our whole sort of vision that we'd be able to have a neutral source of information, a reliable source of information that students can go to and read and be able to, you know, inform themselves about the world's current affairs um, without having to, I don't know, go to The Economist or The Financial Times or any of these other major ones. So that's sort of our, uh, our mission. It's definitely very interesting and I'm going to make sure I tag you all in all the posts that I'm doing about it because it's really beneficial for people to get an understanding of what you guys are about but also the information that you're putting out it's great to sort of spread awareness and make it more accessible to people. So I mentioned in the intro that we're kind of talking about Irish politics but in a more broader sense which is quite interesting and I made sure to in a sort of Q&A style to get more people involved and see what they want to learn. So we have five questions that we're going to run through here but I've already told Drummond and Odrin if they want to mention anything else and by all means. So I guess the first one that I got asked is to ask you guys is what Taoiseach do you admire the most or think they did the most for Ireland and why? The one Taoiseach that uh, comes to mind would be with W.T. Cosgrove who was the first leader um, of the Irish Free State and not because you know he was a good political politician or anything like that but because he sort of had the weight of the first ever uh, doll on his hands the first ever sort of um understanding of Irish politics, I suppose. Uh, there's one sort of notable um, story that I remember from when I was doing history at the Leaving Cert was that um, at the handover, I believe that Fianna Fáil won the election after W.T. Cosgrove uh, as a first term as a Taoiseach. And it would be the first ever handover to the opposition party. 
And I remember my history teacher saying that Eamon de Valera had brought a pistol with him in case anything got violent, but in case uh, W.T. Cosgrove refused to uh, stand down. And I've always sort of admired the fact that this was the first ever um, a sort of general election. It was the first ever sort of testament to whether democracy would work in Ireland. And it went off without a hitch. Um, you know, it was, you know, the opposition were uh, to take, uh, were made uh, the current government. And you know what? And I had a lot of admiration for that. It really set a precedent for Irish politics. And I suppose um, a lot of weight fell on W.T. Cosgrove to sort of institute a democracy, the first ever democracy um, in Ireland. So uh, as a free state anyway. So I thought that was why I would feel he's the uh, Taoiseach that I admire the most. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question in a sense, because um, I don't think there's a particular singular Taoiseach that I really admire that much I think they all have their kind of strengths and weaknesses and certain elements like I think if I had to kind of narrow it down though um, and again by all means I think we still haven't seen probably the country's best Taoiseach yet I think that's still yet to come but I think maybe certain elements maybe Sean Lamass there's a lot to be said for the work he did with America you know it's the first time an American president came up to Ireland JFK you know he kind of opened up Ireland to the international market and to the international sort of community as well post de Valera because he was quite restrictive with you know with regards to international relations I think I think he's I wouldn't be you know saying he's one of my favorite politicians of all time or anything but maybe as well though someone like Gareth Fitzgerald I think for his time probably uh, a a visionary and a progressive voice uh, despite a couple of maybe um, sort of not so progressive things his government did I think him as a person he was quite progressive Uh, you know he was certainly very pro-choice before it was kind of popular to be um, and other elements as well. But I don't think I particularly have a, an admiration for any particular Taoiseach. You know, I think they're a representation of their government at the time. Yeah, we've had a real variety of Taoiseachs, I'd say. But Odrin briefly mentioned America. And we're sitting here filming this on St. Patrick's Day, a day where Chicago, you know, dye their rivers green. So I thought it'd be a good question, actually, well, a good progression to go to the next question, which is, is Ireland's relationship with America truly a beneficial one? I would say it is, um, especially the way that America has sort of instituted itself as a a world superpower and one that has exerted influence across the world. And especially when you have the opportunity for a small island nation uh, like Ireland for their Taoiseach to go over every single year is to have three days behind closed doors talks with the... ...is something that, that not every country has the privilege of having. And the, the sort of, I think that's very beneficial for Ireland because obviously we uh, can talk about trade, but also global politics and all, all these ways that Ireland can exert its influence on the world. So despite it being a small island nation on the fringes of Europe, by having this relationship with one of the largest countries in the world and one of the most powerful countries in the world means that we can exert our influence more than other countries to the same sort of size and GDP as Ireland. And I think in that sense, having that close connection has really helped um, Ireland develop as a country. Yeah, I think I'd agree with Drummond on a, on a couple of those things. But personally, though, I think, you know, any positive relation with any other country is always going to be a good thing, especially when you're from a nation like Ireland that kind of prides itself on being this sort of uh, militarily neutral state that kind of tries to see itself outside of the conflict um I, I would say though kind of in a way in which we approach a relationship with america it's kind of more important to 
separate what a good standing economic relationship is with uh, what opposed to, you know, a political relationship, because in certain senses, you know, I don't think our relationship with the US should outshine constitutional means in any sense, because obviously Ireland is a neutral state. I think in numerous occasions, we've seen that the US are very much active within Ireland, despite us claiming to be militarily neutral. I think there needs to be sort of a, a boundary there, a gap. Um, it's it, it, Although it is an interesting question. Yeah, no, I, I do think the, the American relationship for Ireland is beneficial, although I think we sometimes tend to overstretch how much we need to contribute to that relationship for it to be a positive one. It's definitely an interesting relationship to look into. Like I live about 30 minutes from Shannon. So all the defense force stuff going on there, you know, like there's a lot of people complaining about it from time to time, especially when it comes up in the news. But I definitely think it's an interesting relationship to look at ours with America, but also ours with the UK. Obviously, Brexit is constantly on the news. It's looming over our shoulder. And I thought um, this tied in perfectly, I guess. The next question is, in your opinion, what is the most damaging impact Brexit could have on Ireland's political reality? The one thing that springs to mind for me is the issue with the Northern Ireland Protocol, as well as the Good Friday Agreement. And this is something that has been mentioned numbers of a number of times since 2016 and in the lead up to the, uh, the referendum that Britain had was, what are we going to do about Northern Ireland? What's going to happen with Northern Ireland? Are they going to become a united island? Um, is it going to remain the customs union? And who, who do we, um, I suppose, whose interests do we protect? And obviously the Conservatives were in power with the DUP for a while and Certainly more recently, since Britain officially left the EU, there has been even more contention with uh, parties um, in Northern Ireland as well. And I, I remember I was talking to uh, Senator, or Deputy Neil Richmond now um, about this and he, uh, on a podcast interview for Frontier. And he believes that, you know, like a united Ireland is possible in the future, but attitudes need to be ready for it. And he wants there to be like a, a cross-party or a cross-island um, approach where, uh, everybody's attitudes are um, are understood and I feel this is something that certainly he as well felt that isn't really as understood in Westminster as it is on the island of Ireland is that there are two very distinct sort of personalities um, in Ireland and a really sort of you know a decisive history and contentious history between um, uh, both jurisdictions on this island and I think Brexit really threw a spanner in the works of that because Obviously, you know, the uh, unionists up north, they want to remain with Britain because, right, you know, they are a part of the United Kingdom, uh, whereas there are others who um, want it to remain within the customs union. And if they and obviously you have to draw a border somewhere because Britain doesn't want to uh, have any relationship uh, relationship really with the EU uh, that currently exists. So where you have to draw a border and that border is either down the IRC or on the island of Ireland, which then comes into contention with the Good Friday Agreement. So it's really one of those sort of issues, I suppose, that has no real solution to it, other than for people to be more understanding of one another. And I really think that that's one of the major issues Brexit has had on this island is trying to sort of highlighting the differences between the two nations, but also elements under threat, such as the Good Friday Agreement. And it's something that, you know, obviously uh, Simon Coveney and the Irish government has tried to constantly remind Britain of, something that uh, Stormont have tried to remind Westminster of, yet <laughs> Westminster still are trying to uh, remain this separate from the EU, I suppose. And I, I, that definitely threw a spanner into the works um, in relation to 
Ireland's political reality, as you put it. So, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to apologize because I'm probably sounding a little bit repetitive of uh, Drummond at the moment, but I do agree with him again. Like, you know, it's kind of difficult to, you know, look at any other political sort of reality that doesn't involve the conflict in Northern Ireland playing a crucial role. Even before Brexit, you know, if you were to ask somebody what's the biggest uh, political uh, conflict that will arise between, if you were to mention Britain and Ireland, it would be the, you know, question surrounding Northern Ireland. I think, I think though, in regards to what Brexit has done is it has for a lot of, I'd say, uh, unionists in the North who are very pro-European, it has kind of made them start to question whether they want to remain a part of the UK if that doesn't involve being in the in the European Union. Um, so it kind of shifts that landscape a little bit more. The one thing I would say is not so much damaging, but quite worrying is probably the acceleration this has put on the conversation around United Ireland. And it's not because of any political, not because of any personal preference towards it or not, but more so of the fact that the conversation around it, as we've learned with Brexit, if it's rushed, it won't be done properly. Um, and we won't see the results that maybe everyone is thinking is going to come out of it. Um, so I think worryingly, I think that's the most important thing. I think it's good that the conversation is being had, though, and I hope it continues to be had. Um, I know certainly it's starting to get a bit more interesting. And, you know, Sinn Féin have always been, you know, advocating for United Ireland, but they've started to ramp that up a bit more. And the only problem with that is I see a lot more extremist elements of, uh, say, loyalists and even in certain cases, nationalists kind of, you know, seeing this as a call to arms a little bit more um but again like it's just such a complex situation up north and i'm certainly in no real legitimate position to kind of comment on it but i would say that that is probably the most uh damaging impact that brexit will have on irish relations and politics yeah like for me personally when i see what brexit is and then i see, look at northern ireland and i'm kind of like you know, i would be like you guys where i'm looking at the situation and i think okay the idea of a united ireland would be quite an interesting one it'd be something to delve into a lot more and i like that the conversations are happening however i do see that the relationship between ireland and the uk is quite fragile so like you Audrey, and i wouldn't want them to rush into anything and then there would be a lot more damaging consequences for the future but the next question that I got from somebody was that there is a rise of what you would describe as the far right in Ireland. And they were interested in understanding from your point of view, how damaging, if at all, do you see this being for Irish politics or for Irish people in general? I certainly think that this is something that was a long time coming. You know, we've seen across Europe the likes of far right movements, such as the Five Star Movement in Italy, um, in the, the you know Orban and, and Hungary, uh, even Poland currently. So, and you know, Ireland is one of those countries that is going to eventually be affected by it. So, it certainly was something that was a long time coming. This sort of extremist reality um, on the far right. Um, I definitely think the likes of social media has really brought them into the forefront of Irish politics as well, being able to spread you know, disinformation, create echo chambers as well, where, you know, people are constantly just being, you know, given the same information or even disinformation um, about certain issues within Irish politics. And it's definitely one of those things that I suppose we didn't really see much of it in the last general election um, as much, but it's something that in the next general election and other sort of uh, local and European elections that we'll probably see, um, somewhat of an increase in um i suppose odin will be able to add a little bit more than what i've added there yeah it's a topic i take great interest in because as someone who kind of was exposed to i, I think particularly anyone and particularly in the category of young men in ireland are very much exposed to right-wing politics at such a young age if you're anywhere involved online 
which is something that still needs to be addressed by large um, social media platforms out there. And I think it's absolutely scandalous that it hasn't been dealt with already. Um, I think even if you were to look at, say, the last general election and compared to where we're at now, I think COVID has indirectly had an impact on the level of individuals who are being exposed to far right ideas. And then also, again, as I mentioned, social media plays a huge direct role in this. Like, So if we look at the previous general election, yes, there were starting to be fragments of far right parties uh, running in elections. I was in a constituency where one of those far right candidates ran, probably one of the more prominent ones who I'm not going to name because I don't think they're worth the light of day. Um, but, you know, they got very minimal support. And I think even if you went to saw any of their rallies or their protests, you'd struggle to see maybe, you know, plus 10 people at them. I think what we've seen, and this is since COVID and particularly since the new government has been implemented, is this growth in extremism, particularly on the far right. Um, you know, we have the example of the protest against um, the Minister for Children and Equality, um, Roderick O'Gorman, which, you know, literally saw people attending a, a, a so-called protest outside the doll with calls to, you know, hang the minister, you know, and, you know, in any other society, this would have been completely condemned. But apparently at the time, these people are still allowed to operate on this platform that they have. And they still, and they still are operating on this platform, given the more recent anti-lockdown protests we've seen. So it is, it's a, it is very worrying and it is going to be damaging to society if it's not dealt with or it's not addressed. Um, I think even more particularly is the level in which the media has such an abrasive attitude towards it is really um, disheartening to see, particularly mainstream media, because these elements are, you know, already starting to be turned against uh, by elements of the far right. You know, you see it more and more online. Don't trust the media. Don't trust this, that and the other. And that's something that a lot of people are able to appeal to, because, you know, often the media challenges the conceptual ideas of what people think in the think of their world. And some people just aren't willing to accept that. And they're easy to run down a rabbit hole of, you know, blame other people for their own problems or to, you know, look at other things and think, well, this is right and this is wrong. And, you know, it's a scary it's a scary reality that it is starting to come to Ireland, because for a while, Ireland was seen as this very sort of, yes, traditionally conservative nation, but starting to become more progressive and more left in a stance or even just more moderate. Um, and now we're starting to see this sort of weird Americanization element of right wing politics coming to Ireland that really has no place here and really has no history here. Um, I would say one thing, though, is that the media isn't helping itself, um, particularly more recently. There was an article put out that the Daily Telegraph is going to start paying employees uh, based on the clicks their articles get online, which I think is a ridiculous sentiment for any good, well-intentioned journalist to have their monetary value based on who clicks on their sensationalized titles. You know, it's going to push people away from conceptual news that actually informs the reader and kind of push them more to these more extremist elements or, you know, uh, uh, sensationalism in media so i think i think yeah it's a it's a very it's a growing um element in ireland and a very worrying one at that maybe it'll die down after covid i don't know it really depends on how they adapt to it but it's been very poor so far and i really hope there's something done about it it's quite interesting. Some, oh, sorry go ahead. So you don't want if i sort of cut in there because this no, is sort of where frontier um sort of comes in i suppose is that we Odin mentioned there's sort of disinformation and people not trusting media sources and stuff. And this is sort of where Frontier um, sort of, sort of I came up with it because I saw that people were not trusting media sources. They, you know, were clicking on sensationalized um, articles as Odin mentioned there. And what Frontier does is we provide, provide reliable information. And, you know, our articles may be a little bit longer than um, you know, your traditional media ones, but it means that you get more coverage on it. It means that you get a better understanding of what the actual situation is. And all of our articles are cited. All of our articles are from reliable, reputable sources. 
And I suppose in that sense, we are part of the mission is sort of, you know, breaking down these echo chambers and uh, sort of trying to disprove disinformation online, giving a reliable source of information to people who wouldn't um, otherwise have access to it. And I suppose this is one of the ways in which um, you can sort of help the issue, I suppose, by providing reliable information, by showing that your sources are cited, that this isn't something that we created out of nothing. Um, and I think that's something that's certainly very important, especially in this age of where people on the far right are especially are, you know, falling down these echo, uh, echo chambers and rabbit holes of their, own, of their own sort of disinformation. Yeah, and I think it's very interesting that both of you have mentioned media, because obviously the influence of media is quite prevalent, especially on people our age, but even people older than us, I think people sometimes forget that older people are now being exposed to social media, whether it's the likes of Facebook or Twitter, and older people, like, I don't know if you'd count WhatsApp as social media, but WhatsApp, I guess, in a way, is social media. Even if you look at COVID during this year, the amount of misinformation that was spread about it through WhatsApp, through all those forwarding messages, people found it really damaging. And I remember reading an article, I'm not entirely sure what the publication was, and I don't want to make a mistake on it, but if I find it, I'll make sure I put it in the description of the Instagram post. But they were basically explaining that from the outside, it looked like Ireland was a kind of country that was quite gullible. We were quite quick to believe everything that we saw, whether it was on WhatsApp, whether it was on Instagram, whether it was on Twitter, we were quite quick to believe it. And I think COVID just proved how damaging that is. I remember one of my friends forwarding a message about that soldiers, like Irish soldiers are gonna be coming around making sure you're obeying curfew. And obviously that wasn't true, but people were instantly believing it. And I think filter bubbles, especially with sort of this age of, I guess, what people will call Instagram activism, where a lot of information is being put online about these things that they want to get people involved in and they want to spread awareness. But at the same time, it's so important to fact check because filter bubbles are just so dangerous when you don't know where the information is coming from. So I definitely think in terms of an Irish political standpoint, media plays a huge role. And I do hope that it doesn't lead to their monetary value being just based off clicks, because then we're going to see a lot more articles just with these headlines to gain attention that may lead to people believing misinformation. So it's a very interesting topic to delve into and something that requires a lot more time. But I think I'm going to move on to the next question now. And it's what encourages most people to get into politics and in particular Irish politics? Because me personally, I know I'm interested in it, but I know a lot of young people who find the whole Irish political scene very confusing. They don't even understand what the difference between the political parties are. So I guess, what would you say encouraged you guys to get into politics? Well, I suppose, and Odin would probably be able to give a little bit more information on this, considering his Young People in Politics podcast. Um, but certainly for people like me, I've sort of grew up doing like the likes of Model United Nations and debating and stuff. And you're sort of around like-minded people, I suppose. And when you care about social issues and issues that affect the world, you find... I suppose ways to how how can you effectively change that? How can you make invest in trying to solve these issues that affect not just people in Ireland but people around the world? And certainly that's uh, certainly something that sort of attracted me to my interest in politics was that I wanted to learn a little bit more about how I can help solve the world's problems, how the use of diplomacy or even a joining political party or anything like that, or even you know creating a um, uh, a newspaper like I did can help um, sort of solve social issues. And that's something that has always sort of attracted me to politics. And, you know, I ended up pursuing a degree in it. So um, to, to that extent, um, I suppose it was 
I saw that there are issues in the world and that, that, that are, you know, terrible from the likes of, you know, the, you know, the, the, um, the armament of uh, nuclear missiles to, you know, um, I don't know, self-sustainability in South, South uh, Saharan Africa. You know, all these, even the homelessness crisis in Ireland, you know, on a more local level, all these sort of issues drove me to wanting to take more of an interest in it and see how I could solve those problems, how my input could solve these problems. And as a result, um, that's how I ended up doing politics as a, as a degree, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think I have I have two sort of answers to this question. One is kind of how I got into politics. And then I think another one is why people do get into politics or why they should get into politics. Um, the first one, personally speaking, and I haven't talked much about this, and people are always kind of surprised when I tell them, is when I only kind of really got interested in politics around sixth year during the Leaving Cert. Um, and I understand that that's, first of all, an immense privilege to not have to worry about politics all the way up until Leaving Certificates, because some people are just born into it and they have to deal with politics from the get-go. But when I was but when I was first exposed to it, I think, um, and this is why I'm probably so passionate on the idea of, you know, uh, far right extreme, extremism online, the effects it has is because I was first of all exposed to that sort of material. And my pol my political sort of um, viewpoint and hemisphere was shaped around that for so long. And it's quite, a, it's, it's not only, it was at a time where I wasn't feeling the best as well, because as most people will be able to tell you, the leaving circle can be quite draining on individuals when they're doing it, like, and especially the sort of, the anxiety coming up to having to sit those exams as well can really kind of put you in a bad spot. And that's again, what sort of these sort of extremist stuff kind of um, it feeds on is people who are insecure about themselves, who have anxiety surrounding this, this idea and trying to make a simplified answer to very complex questions. And at the time as well, that's kind of what appealed to me was this very easy way to say, well, this isn't my fault or this isn't my problem and I'm not wrong for this, that and the other. Um, and thankfully since, you know, going to college, I've become a lot more reasonable, politically speaking. Um, I'm certainly a much more progressive individual than I was when I was, say, 17 or 18. Um, and I, I am lucky in a sense that I've managed to become involved in some fantastic political um, you know, endeavours, mainly the Young People in Politics series, which does promote a lot of diversity in thought and inclusion. And, you know, it, it kind of gives you an insight into how people are, you know, drawn into politics, whether it be left wing, centre, in some cases, you know, centre right politics. I don't think, particularly speaking, we have too many, thank God, at the moment, uh, extreme youth wings on the right. Um, well, there's some individuals probably in certain youth wings that might fit that description. But overall, I don't think we have that. Um, but no, yeah, how I got into politics um, more recently was through my engagement with other people. And I think it's made politics a much more understanding field and a much more interesting field now why do people get into politics i think there's a lot of reasons for that i think first of all there's the as i mentioned earlier um people who get into politics because they're born into it because they maybe come from a low economic background and they kind of there's no other way that they can get involved in the system without being political um, and that's of course again as i mentioned you know a very disappointing thing in a lot of scenarios where somebody as young as say 10 and below have to get have to be sort of politically aware at that stage uh, most of the people I've talked to who've been involved in politics have kind of said that the financial crash was a big uh, opening point for them in regards to politics because that kind of, you know, at times of hardship, everyone is kind of thrown into the political sphere. Um, other elements more recently, I think social change has been a huge influence on people getting involved in politics, you know, like marriage equality, the Eighth Amendment. And, and I don't even mean that on so much of the point of uh, with regards to the Eighth Amendment, you know, individuals who are 
uh, pro-choice and that's how they got involved in politics. I think people who were pro-life as well, like there's a whole party pretty much that was conceptualized because of the Eighth Amendment pro-life position A and two, and they have their own youth wing now. So there's obviously young people in that element that have been very much drawn into politics because of that stance. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a variety of issues. And I think it's an interesting topic to always cover because it's ever changing and ever growing. And I think any generation you talk to will have a different story on how they got involved. Yeah, it's quite interesting to hear, like I'm very into listening to other people's perspectives. I love just having conversations about the most random things because I feel like you learn so much about different things from different people because everyone comes from different backgrounds. Like my dad would be quite political in the sense that like where he comes from Pakistan and like it's quite, I guess politically it's quite well known to be, I wouldn't say cropped, but I would say a bit um, not above the fence um, to put it <laughs> blankly, I guess. But so I kind of grew up in that sphere where I was interested always in global news. I wasn't the kind of person to constantly focus on America because I don't know, I just really find it interesting. So um, I follow a lot of Al Jazeera articles and that would definitely be my favorite news source because I think they actually encapsulate global news. Um, but politics wise, I guess only recently I've started coming into Irish politics and learning a bit more. I didn't get to vote in the previous general election because I hadn't reached the age yet. But luckily now I am, so I would get to do it next time. But I think people listening to this who may want to, after hearing our discussion, get more involved in it and get more, I guess, absorbed into the political world just to know more about it. What kind of resources, if you have any off the top of your head, to kind of, I guess one thing people always say is what is actually the difference between the Irish political parties? Like, where do they stand? Would you have any idea or advice on where they get such resources that would be easy to comprehend? I'd always recommend reading party manifestos. Quite, you know, easy to find. You just look up, I don't know, like Social Democrats manifesto, Fine Gael manifesto, Labour manifesto, and they're not that long. And you get a they of they sometimes even have like a like a ten point summary of what they sort of believe. Um, sort of like you know they're what their core values are, and then that that's certainly one way. And obviously, you can read a little bit more about that. And I suppose that's one way in which you can learn a little bit more about what the political parties stand for. College has been a great experience, certainly for me personally, about understanding about where different political parties stand. Um, obviously, youth branches can differ from what the senior branch believe, but you tend to be around like-minded people. So, you know, when you go to the freshers stand, I mean, obviously this year's freshers, unfortunately, haven't been able to experience that as much, but you can go around and, you know, sort of ask the, I don't know, the uh Ogre Fianna Fáil or, you know, Ogre Sinn Féin, whoever, or Young Fine Gael even, about what they believe are their main core values or what, um, you know, what their party has done or what sort of events that they run. And I think that's like a really good way because it's sort of a face-to-face -face, um, interaction and you get to sort of see what kind of people are involved with these uh, political parties. And that's obviously if you want to get involved in a young political party, that's one way of doing it. In terms of, you know, learning how to go and vote and stuff or you know understanding how uh, important your voice matters is like the likes of student union elections that's something that a lot of people take for granted I feel in college they say oh well it's always going to be roughly the same kind of person who's elected or whatever and that's what if I sort of felt like that in first year as well but then more so this year sort of seeing the student union elections and seeing the types of people who are running seeing especially with COVID and how that's affected students this year I do think there are, are students who feel that they want to have their voice heard. And there are many fantastic candidates who run. And I suppose it's one way in which your voice can be heard, especially on a college level. 
And in that sense, it sort of gets you used to how politics in the in the in the uh, outside of college works and how um, how you canvass and how campaigns work and things like that. So definitely get involved in a local level, um, whether it be college or your local um, level elections or anything like that, because it does help you sort of build a picture of what you believe, what the political parties believe and how and which way you want to vote. But that, that would be my advice anyway. Mm. I, I've got to sound really self-indulgent here, but like, obviously I've done a series kind of covering every major political party, both North and South of Ireland. So like, that was a question I had myself, like there's no real resource out there that bar, say, as Drummond mentioned, party manifestos that give you an insight into what a party stands for, or even like what they're like as a normal party member level. Um, so, I mean, th- those are all available online, those videos. Um, they're pretty much like they'll there's me sitting down with one youth representative from each of those parties to give a young person's perspective on how they work ranging from people in like say people before profit all the way up to the dup like so i, I mean it, you can kind of gauge where you are at that uh, kind of that way but one thing i'll say though like it's not gonna it's not gonna click with you overnight like what party you want to join uh, you're certainly gonna need to like do a lot of reading on it i know from personal experience people tend to jump into parties uh prematurely um, and I, and they've kind of find then later on down the line that this party isn't really what they signed up for it's not really where their values lie so they end up leaving i think there's there's no shame in stepping back taking a look at everything and joining when you're ready or even in some cases you don't even need to join like you can get very politically active without joining parties there's some fantastic organizations out there that um that you know promote for certain um diverse issues like i know massey is one of them um there's probably a couple more that are escaping my head black and irish is uh is another one as well. It's a fantastic one as well. Um, Erica Heehee is a political coordinator for that, who I talked to recently and is a fantastic organization. So there's a lot of stuff you can get involved in. And I think on college levels as well, obviously we're seeing a lot of the growth and sort of um, like Amnesty International are there. UNICEF are starting to get onto college campuses as well now. So like you don't have to be a member of a political party to be politically active, if that makes any sense. Like you can get your way around it. Um, but again, it's all sort of, it's very much a, a personal choice. So there's no there's no real thing I could say to you, like, go and read this and you'll want to join this party or go and read this and it'll make you join this party. It's very much your own personal journey and take it at your own stage. And if, if you find at some stage that maybe you've taken a wrong turn, there's no there's no harm in turning back and restarting from where you left off last time. And just one last side note, actually, very briefly, um, I've had a lot of people say, well, not to me personally, but I've heard about a lot of people saying that, oh, I'm not going to vote or not going to get into politics because it doesn't relate to me or it doesn't affect me as a young person. So very briefly, like, give me your two cents on what you think about that. Well, I suppose to some extent is that if you, as Odin mentioned, it's your own opinion and it's up to you how you decide to vote or decide not to vote. And it takes time to realize where you sort of stand. Obviously, people have fought for their votes, you know, like the uh, the women's movement as well, and the, in the civil rights movement in the 60s uh, as well, to sort of these sort of things ha- that displayed how important voting was. But fundamentally, voting is a very individual, you know, um, personal thing, and it should represent how you feel. And if you feel that there, I suppose, if there's nothing that represents how you feel, I suppose there's other ways to get involved in uh, things like UNICEF or Massey and other sort of political but also non-political organizations where you can sort of develop what your uh, beliefs are I suppose. Hmm. Yeah no I'll, I'll just add on to that very quickly um, 
I think if anyone's to tell you that voting doesn't matter in Ireland after the last election kind of needs to reevaluate what they're where they're getting that information from sure you have the right not to vote and that's your choice but at the end of the day if you're not voting now when there's literally the option of like say ousting either the two parties if you're into that or you want to keep them in like it's your choice at the end of the day i think it's important that people really do exercise their right to vote though because at the end of the day if it's a if it's a decision you've made and it's on the lesser of two evils it's better than no decision at all yeah, I definitely think it's something people need to start reconsidering, especially since as we progress as a country, our vote should really matter when it comes to these elections. But um, we have two minutes left for this Zoom meeting anyway, but I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciated it. I think it taught me a lot. So I hope it taught our listeners something too. And I just want to say thanks again to both of you for hopping on. Thank you. Pleasure for uh, having us. Thank you.